So we have to ask the question, how can God, how can Paul expect us to always rejoice? How can we rejoice when we lose a loved one or when we can't pay our bills, when we're struggling financially? Or maybe life just seems so overwhelming that you struggle to get out of bed. Or when the nations rage against God, as we've recently heard. See, when we look at the immediate context of Philippians, Paul, as I stated, just directed them to confront two members of the church that were acting in disagreement. And then he turns around and tells them, rejoice always. How can he tell them to rejoice always after confronting those in the church? So we must understand what it means to rejoice and that it is not based upon any individual circumstance. Rejoicing, and listen to this, rejoicing, it is not a feeling and it's not only an expression, but it is an action that one chooses based upon the truth. Rejoicing is an action that one chooses based upon the truth. You may have heard it said that the indicative, which is simply what is true, it always precedes the imperative, that is the command for us to act. The action is for us to rejoice. It's also known as to express joy as a conclusion of who you are in Christ. It looks beyond any problem. It looks beyond any circumstance. And it focuses on the truth of who you are in Christ and the coming of the Lord. So as an illustration, if we imagine that along this stage we see our timeline of life, every one of us, although have gone through various circumstances, in reality they're all very similar. We can look through the timeline of life we see different hardships from broken relationships, maybe substance abuse, maybe divorce, maybe financial difficulties, physical ailments, the loss of life through miscarriages or stillborns, various accidents, and on and on. Each one of us could name different things. And I want to be very clear. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that these situations are not hard, and I'm not saying that they serve no purpose. I have also felt many heartaches just as you, and I understand the weight of them. And as believers, as believers, we should shed tears of sorrow in those situations and with one another. However, when we look at the truth of the word, we must learn what it says, that through these hardships, scripture tells us, it tells us that all of these circumstances, they're momentary afflictions to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory we live in a fallen world but those circumstances are not simply because of the fallen world but it's part of God's plan part of God's purposes to prepare us for an eternal weight of glory the question is we must ask then is do you believe God's word over and above your feelings that is difficult do you believe that all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. Then and only then will you be able to rejoice. And as I've already stated, rejoicing, it is an action. It is not simply a sentiment. It is an action that you choose to live by, not by your feelings, but by the truth in the midst of your circumstances. 
to strain beyond your circumstance. Rest in the truth of who you are and who God is. And as I've already stated once, but I'm going to say it again, I am not saying, nor is Paul saying, that these circumstances do not matter. We're not saying that they're not difficult. But it, instead, the truth we must see is that they do serve God's purposes. Even when we look at Philippians within the context of the entire letter, there was internal conflict that we've already discussed right pre preceding these verses. We, saw, we see external conflict in chapter 1, 27 to 28, when Paul told them not to be frightened in anything by their opponents. So they had external conflict. We see personal conflict with Paul. He tells us that he is imprisoned. So this is not hypothetical. These were not easy times for any of them. And that's why Paul is encouraging them, and he's encouraging us to rejoice always. Well, many of you might be saying, well, that's just Paul. And Paul's hard. Paul's difficult to understand. He doesn't get it. I'm going to stop you right there, okay? Because Peter tells us the same thing. In 1 Peter 1, 5 to 6, listen to what Peter tells us. By God's power, you are being guarded through faith for a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while... If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Various trials are necessary for your growth and for God's glory to be made known. Various trials are necessary for your growth and God's glory to be known. And secondly, I want to make the point that if anyone ever claims that it was only Paul or any of the other disciples that said these type of statements... They're denying the very doctrine of divine inspiration. And at that point in time, the Bible becomes worthless because it's no longer God's word. So believe that these are the divinely inspired words of God, which are inerrant and sufficient, that we can stand firm in those truths based upon, in your circumstances, I apologize. We are told to rejoice always, but what can you rejoice in? How can you rejoice in these type of circumstances when life feels beyond despair? It tells us. It tells us what to rejoice in. Not in your circumstances, but look at what the text says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I'll say rejoice. Did you pick up on it? Rejoice in the Lord. That is the key. That is the key to what we rejoice in. And this is one of the major themes throughout all of Philippians. He makes the same statement in 3 verse 1 where he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. Listen to what John MacArthur says in regards to this. And quote, This is the sphere in which the believer's joy exists. A sphere unrelated to the circumstances of life, but related to an unassailable, unchanging relationship to the sovereign Lord. To rejoice, to be able to rejoice in your circumstance. It is a supernatural work of God that he transforms your heart. He transforms your mind. It is also exclusive to the Christian. As Charles Spurgeon stated, and quote, Rejoicing is the Christian virtue where happiness is the virtue of the world. 
I think everybody here knows that happiness is dependent upon your circumstances. It's dependent upon your material possessions, your feelings, and all of which are fleeting. When those circumstances go, your happiness goes as well. Here's another quote. Listen to what John Calvin said about rejoicing in the Lord. John Calvin stated, Unquestionably, it differs from the joy in the world in this respect, that we know from experience that the joy of the world is deceptive. It is frail and fading. And Christ even pronounces it to be accursed. He goes on to say, Therefore, it is a settled joy in God, which is never taken away from us. It is a settled joy in God, which is never taken away from us. A believer's joy, it comes from God, it's sustained by God, and in that, you can always rejoice. Oftentimes, I like to look and see what Scripture says not to do, to look at the opposite. So if we look at Luke 10, 19 to 20, it gives us an example of what not to rejoice in. Luke 10, 19 to 20, and just to bring a little bit of context to it, Jesus is speaking to 72 distinct individuals that he gave specific authority to. And listen to what he tells them in Luke 10, 19. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. What great authority that those 72 individuals were given. How easy it would have been to rejoice in that type of power, that type of authority over the evil one. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He quickly goes on. He says in verse 20, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this. Do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. That is rejoicing in the truth and not in the circumstance. And we see this very same point that's being made in Philippians chapter 4. As I said, Paul had just ended with telling them to, to confront two individuals in the church, and he quickly then turns around and says, rejoice always. But, but look at what it says. In verse 3, right after he told them to address the two ladies, he says, whose names are in the book of life. In that we can rejoice. Their names are in the book of life. And he says, rejoice in the Lord always. That is what we are rejoicing in. That for those who are in Christ, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. It's not a one-time thing. The scripture clearly tells us it's not a one-time thing. Paul goes on and he says again, I say rejoice. It's as if Paul is saying, I'm telling you to rejoice and I'm going to keep on telling you to rejoice in the Lord. Keep on rejoicing in that truth that your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, no matter what circumstance you're in today. That leads us to another question then. The question then becomes, are you in the Lord? 
Are you in Christ? Do you have faith today in God's grace that was displayed upon the cross? His crucifixion? That he who knew no sin became sin so that you might receive adoption as sons? Do you have faith in that today? Are you a new creature in Christ? Are your desires that of Christ? Or do you still live by your own selfish desires? If that's the case, I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that God would open your eyes to his grace that was shown to us upon the cross that is sufficient, that proves that your name was written in the Lamb's book of life. Turn from your sin and turn towards him. Believe in the Lord. Believe in Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection. Then and only then will you be able to rejoice. For those that are in Christ, for the believers that are here today, who are new creatures, rejoice always. And I'll keep on telling you to rejoice. Your happiness is fleeting, but the truth of the word is that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. So even in the midst of your circumstances, no matter how difficult they are, no matter how hard they are, in the midst of shedding tears over them, we can still rejoice. Listen to some of the things that Paul tells us throughout the letter of Philippians. He tells us to the believers in the midst of the circumstances. He says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. That is something that you can rejoice in at all times. In 120, he goes on to say, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. In 129, he says, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. It's been granted to you that you should suffer for his sake. And in 217, even if I'm poured out as a sacrificial drink offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice with me. And lastly, three. Seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Every believer is to count everything as loss. Your health, your prosperity, your national citizenship, even your life, as Paul tells us. Everything is worthless compared to that of knowing Jesus Christ. So rejoice always, and again, I'll keep on telling you, rejoice, for your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There's also great purpose in this. There is great purpose in this, in your circumstances. By rejoicing in the midst of your trials, in the midst of imprisonment, personal loss, financial loss, abuse, or in the midst of the nation who continues to plot in vain and gets worse each day. Paul tells us there's purpose in this. In 128, he tells us that it is a clear sign of your salvation, but of their destruction. 
By you rejoicing in your circumstance, you are proclaiming the gospel of Christ. It tells of your salvation, but of their destruction. Why? We must let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Why? So that we can win more of them to Christ. So that his children can hear and see the gospel through us and turn to him. Rejoice in the Lord always. For your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. That can only come through faith in Jesus Christ. So what does that look like? What does it look like in our day-to-day lives? Well, I'm glad that you asked. Now that we know that what we are to rejoice in, we can turn to verses 5 and 6, which gives us some practical application. Verses 5 and 6, and we will look at the Lord is at hand. 5 and 6 says, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Here we have two commands that are given to us. Two commands that flow out of our joy in the Lord, and they're connected by the fact that the Lord is at hand. Those two commands are let your reasonableness be known to all people, and let your request be made known to God. I strongly encourage you, if you write in your Bibles, if you highlight, underline those two statements. Let your reasonableness be known to all people, and let your request be made known to God. And we're first going to look at reasonableness known to all people. And this may better be translated as gentleness. Let your gentleness be known to all people. See, this portrays the element of selflessness. It's not a new idea that Paul is all of a sudden throwing in towards the end of the book. Rather, he is reiterating points that he has continually made throughout the letter. Flip back to chapter 2 with me, verses 4 and 5, just to show you one place where Paul makes this exact same point. Chapter 2, verses 2 to 5. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this, in, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This gentleness... It is a mindset, it is a way of life that God calls every believer to, for us to be humble, gentle, to be meek. And this mindset can only be based upon the truth of God's word, the truth of your positional standing with God. I don't believe anybody here would be surprised if if I told you that this is in direct opposition to what the world tells us. The world that continues to plot in vain. What does the world tell us? They tell us to be bold, to be aggressive, to be vocal, to be powerful. Stand for what you want. Or even a common phrase, the squeaky wheel gets the grease. 
As long as you make yourself known, you will get what you want. That's what the world tells us. However, as believers in Christ, we are called to a gentleness. A gentleness within our reasoning, even in the most trying times. And I want to show you another direct contrast that we see in the book of James. This is another direct contrast of what the world says versus what the scripture tells all believers in James chapter 3, 15 to 18. James 3, 15 to 18. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But listen to the contrast. In verse 17, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, warning against worldliness. So what this is telling us is that each one of us are to be self-controlled in every situation. This, again, does not come from your own inner strength. It does not come from you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, but it comes to us as the fruit of the Spirit by being in Christ. It does not mean that we are to accept all things. It does not mean that we are to accept all things. We are not to compromise on sound teaching in an effort to be gentle. For in this specific context, in Philippians, Paul is not even referring to doctrine at this point. And in many other places, he tells us specifically that we are to expose false teaching. This also does not mean that we are to attempt to have fellowship with all people and to compromise with the world's standards of conduct or other religions. For we are to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead we are to expose them. In 2.15, he tells us that we are to live pure and blameless children without fault in the midst, in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation. Why? So that we shine as lights in the world to proclaim the gospel of Christ. This tells us how we are to live, how you are to respond to those individuals, how we are to respond to the nation that continually gets worse, that continues to plot against God. We must show that we are clearly set apart from this world and set towards God. Another thing that this is not, or something that it implies, is that we are not to be so rigid and inflexible that we don't listen to others. And when we're listening, we need to then gently, but boldly, share the truth of the scriptures. We always need to speak the truth with patience and gentleness, remembering we are simply unworthy servants. We have no right We are unworthy servants. We are simply planting seeds and watering seeds. 
It's up to God to make them grow. None of us have yet arrived at the end goal, so we should not act as if we have. For even Paul told us, he said specifically, specifically, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. He said, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Why? So that we might win more of them. If you find your joy in the Lord and not happiness in your circumstances, then you will be free to be gentle in all circumstances and to all people. Then you will be able to speak truth out of love for their soul. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. Why? Because the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. That last phrase of verse 5 It serves a couple of different purposes. It serves as a warning to be gentle and also as a comfort for us for approaching God in prayer. As a warning, be gentle for God is at hand. I know many of us here, especially the parents, have probably used the line with our children, well, if Jesus was standing here next to you, would you still say or do that? Well, the truth is he is always at hand. Not only is he at all times fully present, but he at all times knows all things. Let your gentleness be known, because the Lord is at hand. And vengeance belongs to him, not to us. Not to us. It is an individual warning, but it is also a warning that he is at the gates, and that he can come at any time. Therefore, be a servant to all so that we all can win more of them to Christ. Speak truth out of a sincere joy in the Lord. And then you can take your concerns to God. It's a sign of your salvation and of their destruction. Easier said than done, I understand. How can we be so gentle to all people? Many of you are saying, Brady, you don't know Aunt Susie. You don't know... Uncle Bob, you don't know my family. You don't know my neighbor. You don't know my coworker. I don't. I don't. But what does the scripture say? Are those individuals exceptions? No. What does it say? It says all people. All people. So how can you be gentle with everyone? First, it's because our joy is in the Lord. And secondly, we can be gentle because we are told to make our requests known to God. Let your request be made known to God. Hopefully you can see how we are to respond to individuals with gentleness and how we are to go to God in prayer. We can go to God in passion and zeal, confess your anger, confess your frustrations, and pray not only for that individual, but pray for your own sanctification for your own mind to be transformed, for strength to remain gentle with those individuals. It told us to be gentle with all people and to make our requests known to God. We are to act in a Christ-like manner to people and turn to God with your request. He's telling us to go to God with your cry for help in every circumstance. And if you do this, If you take your concerns to God, 
then you can be gentle, then you can be merciful, then you can be meek when dealing with all people. They go hand in hand. Paul also tells us, do not be anxious. This could more clearly be understood as stop worrying. Paul is oftentimes very direct. Stop worrying. To be anxious or to worry, it is an attempt to carry the burden of the future yourself. It is an attempt to carry the burden of the future yourself. You cannot rejoice in the Lord through your circumstances if you continually fear that God will not meet your needs. And as I said earlier, this doesn't mean that we are to simply pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. Nor does it mean that you're to act as if you have no emotions or if you're numb, if you have no needs or if you have no feelings. That's not what it's telling us. For it tells us to take our request to God. Take your needs, take your requests, your concerns, your frustrations. Take them to God who can bring peace. Not your neighbor or your coworker that needs to see Christ in you. And Paul tells us three things here. He says, by prayer, supplication, and thanksgiving. These really can all be looked at as three synonyms. And basically what Paul is saying is, in all manners, go to God in prayer. In all manners, take everything to God in prayer. A failure to realize and trust that God will provide for you, it in essence means that you think you know better than God. That you know what you need more than he does. See, we must, as believers, continually cry out to God with our concerns. Let him know what we're struggling with and believe that he will provide exactly what we need. Not too much and not too little. It's not to inform God, for he clearly tells us he already knows what we need even before we ask him. It also does not mean that you're going to get exactly what you want. And I think we've all learned that lesson. I'm sure many of us here are now thankful that God has not granted to us some of the prayers that we have prayed. See, his resolutions, they are higher. They are far greater than anything any one of us could imagine. So do not be anxious about anything, but bring all things to God in prayer and do it with thanksgiving. Why with thanksgiving? Because it's by God's grace alone that we can even come to him in prayer, that we can make our requests known to him. If you are in Christ, you can go directly to the throne of God and make your request known, for your name is written in the book of life. So when we have joy in the Lord, we not only can be gentle in all circumstances, but we can go to the Lord in prayer and trust that the Lord will provide what we need. Well, for those of you who continue to try to make excuses, excuses not to be gentle with certain people, I'm certain there are the same number in the room that are trying to make exceptions with your circumstances. You're again saying, well, Brady, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't know how hard this is. And I don't. I don't know every circumstance in this room. But according to the passage, it does not change. It does not change how we are to respond to the Lord 
or to people. It is a universal truth for all circumstances, for all places, for all times, and for all believers. So rejoice in the Lord, showing gentleness to all people. Do not be anxious, but simply let your requests be made known to God. Not one of these commands that he gives us are dependent upon the person or upon the circumstance. Rather, it is dependent upon the peace of God. Look at verse 7 with me as we look at the peace of God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. For those of you who are still anxious, this point won't take near as long, so just give me a second. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As an illustration, listen to this illustration. During the time of Diocletian, a martyr was about to burn for his profession of Christ. He said to the judge who was giving orders to light the fire, Will you come and lay your hand on my heart? And the judge did so. The martyr asked, does it beat fast? Do I show any sign of fear, he said? No, said the judge. Now, lay your hand on your own heart and see whether you are not more fearful than I am. Or how about the account that we see in Steve, of Stephen in Luke chapter 7, which says, as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. You see, their circumstances were horrific. But their peace was of God. Their peace was of God. And that is a peace that surpasses all understanding. And this statement is found nowhere else in the New Testament. And it's also not the same as peace with God. For peace with God, it refers to our justification through faith, through in Christ's righteousness. It brings the believer into a relationship with God. That's peace with God, when one is no longer at enmity with God. But the peace of God, it refers to God himself. It refers to God himself. And there's two points to this that we need to look at. There's two points of the peace of God. First, John MacArthur states it clearly, and he says, the peace of God refers to an inner tranquility based on unwavering confidence that God is able and willing to do what is best for his children. That is how a martyr has a calm heart. They know that God is able and willing to do what is best. It is an understanding that all things do work together for the good of those who are called according to God's purposes. But it's also more than that. It's also more than an inner peace. And more directly in this statement, Paul is referring to God's peace. It characterizes God's very nature. It is the peacefulness of God's own eternal being, the peace that God himself is. And the key word to help us understand this, what Paul is trying to tell us is guard. Underline, highlight, circle, guard. 
It is God's peace that will guard each one that belongs to him. You see, this is a military term, and it pictures a detachment of soldiers that stand guard over a city to protect it from attack. So it's literally as as if the peace of God is a garrison over top of you. He's keeping guard over you, not just your thoughts, not just your feelings, but your entire being, your thoughts, emotions, affections, and moral choices. The peace of God guards you, protects you, so that you are safe against the assaults of worry and fear and the nation that plots in vain. Again, it must be stated that this is a peace that is for believers only. It comes from a divine origin. And it's very difficult to be explained, for the scripture itself says it surpasses all understanding. But when you see it, or when you experience it, you know that it is nothing other than the peace of God over you, that guards you, and it will not make sense to those around you. It will not make sense to the world. When you hear of someone being burned at the stake and they have no fear, or when Paul was in prison yet continues to rejoice as he's waiting for his sentence, and he's at complete peace, you know it is the peace of God from his very nature that guards them. And that same nature guards every believer, not from your circumstances, but in the midst of your circumstances. The peace of God guards you. The very nature of God himself guards you. So in conclusion, for those that do not have this peace, then I, again, I plead with you today, turn to Christ. Turn to Christ. That is the only place that you'll find that peace. Stop attempting to carry the burden yourself. You will only continually fail. Your happiness will be fleeting. For the believers here today, I will tell you to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll keep on telling you to rejoice for your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life. You can take your request to God and his very nature guards you. Show the gentleness of Christ to all people. Take your request to God and rest in the peace of God which guards your whole being. We must let our manner of life be worthy of the gospel so that we might be able to win more of them for Christ. Let us pray.